Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God, and uh, we're going to give you some of the keys to the Kingdom of God today, and uh, it's going to be up to you whether or not to use them or not, because we were all given the keys to the Kingdom when Christ told us what the keys to the Kingdom were. He told Peter. He didn't give Peter any keys. He, he didn't actually hand them over uh, keys to the pearly gates. He said... What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loose in heaven. So, the key to the kingdom of heaven is about binding and loosing. If you bind your brother, you will be bound. If you loose your brother, you will be loosed. If you kill your brother, your your life is now forfeit in your own hands. This is what was going on with Cain and Abel. Cain was doing things different than Abel. Uh, a lot of people don't understand what he was doing because of the metaphors of the language, the idioms of the language, and the way in which we interpret the language. But the reality is is that uh, they were using different methods of sacrifice. And that different method of sacrifice produces... A different thing. But Cain himself, if he, he just did right, he would be okay. Even though he was using this other method. In other words, this other form of government. Because the Bible is really about government. It's about the way in which you govern yourselves as individuals. It's the way you, it's about how you govern yourselves as a collective, how you rule over one another or not rule over one another. That's really what the Bible is talking about, your relationships with each other. We're supposed to have a relationship with God, which is a spiritual relationship that manifests itself physically, but we're also supposed to have a relationship with each other. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. So how you do that is what we call Government. How you either govern yourselves or you hire other people to govern over you, rule over you. Well, we see that for hundreds of years, Israel had no king, had no prime ministers, had no uh, presidents, had no commander in chief, had these judges. We don't really understand that. I'm working on explaining that. We'll probably have to do a show explaining what the judges were. Because all the words that are translated judges in the Bible are not the same Hebrew word. When you read it in the English, you see judges. And you say, oh, they're talking about judges. But they have a different Hebrew word. In the, the first place, you see the word judges in the Bible. It's not the normal word for judges. It's actually the word for God. It's Elohim. It's translated judges. All of a sudden, they decide to translate it judges. They translated God's most other places, or God. Same word. So, do you miss something when they decide all of a sudden to translate a Hebrew word a completely different way than they normally translate it? You bet. Why did they do that? Well, you'll have to ask them. I could guess, 
but you really have to find out from them. You could guess, but you don't necessarily know. But that's where faith comes in. Because I'm going to tell you a lot of things today that you're not going to get without faith. Because it's going to be different than what you normally hear. But we back it up with a lot of information and and, uh, a lot of uh, facts. And we point to a lot of things. But we don't want to prove the kingdom of God to you. We don't want to prove the way of God to you. Because then it's not really yours. It's us proving it to you. It's us changing your mind. You want your mind changed by the Holy Spirit. So when we say something that you have not heard before, don't jump to the conclusion that it's not true. Take a look at it. Now, I, I did a, a show last week in the second half of the day uh, that will be released on Tuesday uh, that... Uh, went and answered some questions by Ben Shapiro about Judaism at the time of Jesus Christ and Christianity at the time of Jesus Christ and how the two differed. He said he wasn't an expert on Christianity. He wanted to know if somebody could tell him what and how these things were different. So I did a show on it. And, of course, right after I've done the show, I think it was an hour-long show, uh... I began to think, you know, when I said this or I said that, he's probably going to think, oh, I can't be right because that contradicts something he already knew. Well, I could have explained it farther, but I only had an hour. (laughs) So that's the problem today is that we only have a couple hours to go into some really amazingly different things than you're used to. We're going to go over a, a letter I received from a government official in South Africa who is starting a new uh, party. He's the founder of the Kingdom Governance Movement. So you can see right away why we might be interested in addressing what he had to say in the letter. He's reading one of our books and uh, finding a lot of agreement, but then asked a number of questions where he thought there was maybe a disagreement from what he already knew, which is a good thing because we can tell you what that Why we say what we say. We don't just pull the stuff out of a hat. We explain it in great detail. But anyway, if you're reading in the Bible and you're reading it in English rather than the original Hebrew, even if you could read the original Hebrew, who taught you Hebrew? And and how, how can you do that? How can you read it in the original Hebrew and actually know what they meant? Because there's idioms. uh, There's metaphors. Uh, the Bible is full of stories, parables, and, uh, and supposed historical stories that are trying to tell you something. And the, your perception of the words can change the meaning of the author from what he actually intended to tell you. And there's a thing called emotive conjugation. Sometimes it's called Russell congregations because it was kind of promoted by Bertrand Russell at one time, who's a philosopher. But he points out the way in which you describe things, which is dependent upon the symbols of words, you may come up with a different impression of what you think is going on. And he gives some examples. I am firm, he says, but you are obstinate. Well, being obstinate is a lot like being a firm, but it has a different ring, a different emotive emotion 
that is uh, connected to it. So he says, I am firm, you are obstinate. He is pig-headed fool. Another example, I am righteously indignant. You are annoyed. He is making a fuss over nothing. All talking about the same thing, but putting yourself in a little bit different light. Well, how does this relate to what we're going to talk about today? Well, there's a lot of things you read in the Bible that puts certain doctrines in a better light than they really belong. Uh, we always say that at the church there's only one doctrine that the church is supposed to be preaching. Now, I may teach you a lot of different things. I could teach you about uh, sheep herding. I can teach you about building. And that's that's me teaching you. And I'll have a lot of opinions about how to do certain things. A lot of times you can do things a little different and make it your own. But the church is supposed to only be tr- teaching the doctrines of Christ. What Christ taught. So when I'm speaking as a minister of the church, I'm not supposed to be teaching my doctrines. I'm supposed to be teaching Christ's doctrines. Now we'll look at a lot of other things around that, like language. You know, what did Jesus really mean? What was he really doing? Jesus, right away, at the beginning of his ministry, says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you guys. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna appoint it to a bunch of guys who are going to bear fruit. So he's talking government here, cause he's t- talking to the Pharisees who had pretty much the control of the government. At that particular time, they had a Sanhedrin, 70 guys, 70 plus one, who were like a Congress, maybe like your parliament, depending on what government you have. He appointed 70. I always wondered, why 70? Why did they say 70? Is there a meaning? Is is there a significance to that number? Well, that's what's in the Sanhedrin, 70. Who appointed the original Sanhedrin? Well, that that was Moses. And he was to take them up and introduce them to the Holy Spirit. And they were to operate from the Holy Spirit. But by the time we got to... Judea, at the time of Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin was working like lawmakers. They weren't just spiritual guides in a society of free people. They were a legislature appointed, possibly elected, but overseen by the government. Uh, The king, whoever the king happened to be, like Herod. And it was legislating. Laws and rules and regulations and telling the people what they were supposed to do and not do. That wasn't the original purpose of the Sanhedrin as set up by Moses. They were to be spiritual guides. The original Senate in Rome, were the Senate was old men. That's what it meant. They were the old men, elders of the community, picked by individuals in the community up through a network of hearths and much like the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They had no legislative power to make law, um, demand, you know, draft people into an army or put, uh, send people to war. They didn't have that kind of power. 
over a period of time, they developed that kind of power. And then they also, over a period, you know, when they first had the Senate, there were no emperor. There was no emperor. There was no Principas Civitas. There was no Apotheos of Rome. These are offices created later as the government went from a republic to an indirect democracy and then to an imperial uh, power. That was the evolution of that particular government. We have another question that we're going to be answering here that came up asking about the differences between Israel and modern Christianity. And really there should be very little difference. Because God's the same, why aren't we the same in our relationship with God? Now there is a difference, but there, how much of a difference and where that is, that's what we'll be addressing. But today we're going to be addressing this letter from, uh, if I can get the name right, Ben Kingali Matomale, which is uh, someone who was a member of the ANC party and now the founder of this kingdom governance of movement. I listened to an interview with him uh, with uh, John Webb in South Africa just to get a little bit more of a feel for him because I only had a written letter from him. And uh, he was talking about Tutu uh, loves sinners, but not the sin, as the shepherd loves his lost sheep, but he celebrates when they return to the flock. And that, of course, is the prodigal son. The prodigal son wanted to go do his own thing, live his own life, do his, do things the way he wanted to do them. He wanted his inheritance, and then he would go and do these things. Well, he had to go somewhere else and do them. He, not, not under his father's house could he get away with some of the stuff that he wanted to do. Well, it ended up kind of going badly, and he wanted to come back. He didn't just come back and say, Dad, I'm home. He came back. To be a servant in his father's house. He said, because I, he had already taken his inheritance. He had no right to his inheritance. He had already squandered it on, on riotous living. That's kind of what we did when we sinned and went out of the house of God. And then we come back. We have to come back to be a servant. Well, we ever, have we ever done that as a nation? Well, Israel certainly did that as a nation. They said, they didn't want to have God reign over them. They wanted to have a king like everybody else. They wanted to have a president or a prime minister like everybody else. They had nobody in such an office for hundreds of years. And yet they they ran a, a system of governance, self-governance. There was no taxes really to speak of. There was one little tiny head tax which amounted to about a half a dime once a year. And anybody could pay it for you if you didn't have it. Somebody else, you know, your neighbor could say, well, he's really a great guy in the community. He doesn't have a half a dime, but uh, we'll pay it for him. So that kind of your ante up. Other than that, all the taxes you paid were in the form of tithes, which was voluntary. Nobody was arrested or thrown into jail for not paying their tithe. Nobody was, you know, flogged or beaten or or had their stuff taken away because they didn't pay a tithe. You tithed according to the service of your minister to your minister. That's a different kind of government than what most people have today. That's the kind of government that Christ set up when he appointed the kingdom to the apostles. And the apostles rightly divided the bread from house to house. They had a daily ministration where they rightly divided the bread from house to house. 
That's what it says in the Bible. That's what they were doing. Now, there was a lot of free bread around in those days. Rome had free bread. We, we hear about free bread and circuses. They had a regular weekly giveaway of bread and grains and wine and cheese and all sorts of things, even medical care. That was the welfare state that Rome had become in order to have an emperor. That's how you get an emperor is that you first go to a welfare state. Now, a lot of people don't make that connection. But 150 years before Christ, somebody made that connection. They knew exactly what happens when the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the way of the rule of force and violence. Israel did not support itself by forcing the contributions of the people. At least not at first. After they had a king, Samuel says in Samuel 8, if you want to look it up, that's everybody should be very familiar with it. All Americans should be familiar with it because it's entirely quoted in Thomas Paine's Common Sense which is about government, but there he is quoting the Bible. He's writing a pamphlet about government and he's got the almost the entire Samuel 8 in there saying that if you want to have a ruler who can exercise authority one over the other, he's going to take and take and take and take and take and take. He just goes on and on what he's going to take. First, your fruits of your labor. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's even going to take your sons and make them run before his chariots. In other words, draft them into a military position where they're in danger. He's going to take your daughters even. They're going to work for him. That's that's what he says is going to happen if you want to have a king who can exercise authority. An executive officer is what that is of government. They didn't have that before. When, when they asked for that, God said, go ahead and give it to them. Tell them what they're going to get, but go ahead and give it to them. Because You know, God believes in free choice. But informed choice. He wants you to know what he's gonna, you're gonna get this guy, he's gonna take and take and take and take. And then you're gonna eventually cry out. He says. But I'm not gonna hear you. So, you know, we do lots of shows trying to explain how you get God to hear you. Well, again, this, you know, as you judge, so shall you be judged. That's a principle that Christ repeated. It's that principles are repeated over and over again in the Bible. So if you want God to hear you, you have to hear your neighbor. You have to hear your cries of your neighbor when he needs help. That's why you gather. You don't gather in a congregation of the church to get a good feeling. You don't gather in a congregation of a church to get stuff, to be secure. We had a guy... And I actually just came across one of his letters. And he was around for a while and he donated his church. But we kept saying, well, join the network. Get into the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded. That's what, that's what, most people don't get this. So I have to repeat it often because <laughs> nobody else is saying it. Jesus commanded that his ministers, his disciples, make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. In companies of symposia is the, the Greek word we see there, which is usually ten. Ten men. Ten heads of families. Ten elders. That's what an elder is, the head of a family. And and then they organize in ranks of a hundred and, and ranks of fifty. And that's what he was saying there in Mark. And he was saying it before 
they distributed any loaves and fishes, 5,000 men and their families, that could have been 20, 30,000 people, had to sit down in groups of tens, fifties, and hundreds. Why? They weren't going to get any loaves and fishes till they did. And that's what we see there. When you see the movies, when people tell the story, they never tell that part. They they show hundreds of people and they're just handing out these baskets and everybody's just kind of grabbing like some sort of a big mob. That isn't what they were doing. They were getting organized to rightly divide the bread. So those who had a right to a loaf would get a loaf. And those that had a right to a fish would get a fish. And those that did not have a need for it, they wouldn't get it. So there would be enough to go around. Everybody shared and there'd be enough to go around. That's a miracle to get people to do that. Especially today, because people don't think that way. But of course, that's what repentance is, is thinking another way. So we kind of just highlighted what kingdom government looks like. Kingdom government looks like people sharing with other people. The welfare of the kingdom, the daily ministration of the kingdom, is done by faith, hope, and charity. What's happened is the governments of the world have gotten into the faith, hope, and charity business. Except they don't call it faith, hope, and charity. They call it allegiance, entitlements, and compulsory offerings. That's different than faith, hope, and charity. Both are collected to provide for the needy of society. And of course, that's what religion was. Religion was the performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. Because he had to hear the cries of your fellow man and care for your fellow man. If he's hungry, if he's uh, injured, if he's in a ditch, he's destitute, whatever, you have to be the good Samaritan that comes to his aid. But this, I mean, you go down to places in Los Angeles, and I'm sure places in South Africa, and places in San Francisco, there's a lot of people on the side of the road. Some of them don't need any help. Some of them probably ought to be locked up. But which ones? How do you know? But that's the job of religion. Not locking up part, but the uh, helping out part. Pure religion is doing that unspotted by the world. That's what James says. Unspotted by the world? What world? How, how does the earth spot your religion? Well, that's not what that word means there. That's one of those places where they arbitrarily change the meaning of a word by translating. I mean, you got five different Greek words in the New Testament alone that are translated into the single English word, world. Not all the time, but many times. Well, which one was that that they used there, that James used there? Well, it was the one that means, and I'm quoting here, constitutional order or system, government. You're supposed to take care of the needy without the government of the world. Without socialism forcing the offerings of the people. Now, that's a drastic statement. Can I, can I unpack that so you can see that's what the Bible says? Well, we'll do that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So... Anyway, we'll we'll unpack what we've just been talking about a little bit and we'll take a look at 
at uh, some of these ideas. But it's very important to understand that God wants us to govern ourselves. And he wants us to govern ourselves by the leading of the Holy Spirit within us. So we could have a whole show on talking about how do you get the Holy Spirit within you. You can't force them in. So you have to do something that would draw you near the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit near you. And that, of course, is why the word sacrifice in the Old Testament is from a word that means to draw near. Because God gives life. God loves you. He goes out of his way to provide for you. And if you are made in the image of God, you should be doing that for your neighbor. You should be loving your neighbor as yourself. See, one of the problems with Cain is he didn't love his brother as much as he loved himself. So he fell into conflict and ended up hitting his brother over the head, using force against his brother. Not a good plan. Not what we should be doing. So, what does kingdom governance look like? If we wanted to move in the way of kingdom government, what would that look like? Would it look more socialist, where we'd be giving somebody, uh, some Sanhedrin, some parliament, some congress, more and more power to make choices for us? We see... We've done a number of shows this last couple of weeks because there's a huge movement going on in the, the the world in the United States anyway, and I'm sure it's going on in other places. But it's certainly clear movement. There's been huge amounts of money given out by pharmaceutical companies to congressmen all over the United States. We see it, and we've actually I know people who have actually been looking in to how much was donated to different congressmen and senators in the state of Oregon by pharmaceutical companies. And almost every congressman, (laughs) senator, and governor uh, in Oregon and and people in the government uh, governor's office in Oregon have violated the Constitution of Oregon that says that you can't take more than 10% of the donations for your campaign from outside of Oregon. Uh, or in some cases, even outside of the district in which you're running. That's, it's, that's the law. It was, it was upheld by the Supreme Court just back in 1990. The Supreme Court of, uh, the Superior Court in Oregon. And yet they're almost all in violation of this. And so there's a movement, because if you are in violation of it, you have to step down from the government. And you can't run again. For years, you can't, it's like, like, okay, well, we'll just have another quick election and I'll get elected again. No, that's start all over again. And they're almost all in violation. That's, that's a huge thing. That's like, that's like the Sanhedrin before Jesus came. Because there was a Sanhedrin, you know, long before Jesus got on the political scene. And that Sanhedrin was actually almost disbanded by itself because a huge number of them walked out of the Sanhedrin because things were so corrupt. People were taking bribes again. Remember, that's one of the reasons why the people decided they wanted to have a king to begin with, way back in the days of Saul. It's because the Levites were taking bribes and the Levites were a part of the appeals court. You see, the, the whole system of the Levites was their government elected on a very local basis. 
you know, ten families picked a minister who was usually from this pool of Levite ministers. And then that Levite minister got together with nine other Levite ministers like himself and they picked a minister. So this is how they sat down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. This is how they organized their whole society. Each of these little groups, you know, I noticed that uh, I read some other things that uh, uh, Matamala uh, sent uh, uh, that were on the internet and that he testified somewhere and they asked him what clan he was a part of. You see, that's that they're kind of broke down that way in these nonpartisan communities representing local people. But then what power do they have when when you elect a Levite, he doesn't get to make laws for the people in his ten family congregation. He's there as a servant. It's a servant type government. It's it's like a shepherd. A shepherd guides them. You know, say, oh, we don't want to go over there. There's quicksand there. Oh, there's cliffs over there. Oh, there's coyotes over there and mountain lions. And so the sheep, you, you guide them away from them. But they decide what they're going to eat and when they're going, when they're tired and they want to sit down and when they want to go get a drink. He leadeth them by, beside the still waters, but he can't make them drink. They, they're governing themselves within the flock. And if you have a good flock, like the one we have out here on the desert, they come together. They come every day when I go out to collect the sheep from the, we're in a nearby field. I'm not way out on the desert now because we're in the middle of lambing. I just go out there and I call the sheep and they all come and run. Almost all last night, one lamb stayed in the field. <laughs> and uh, I scolded him when I found out he was still out there <laughs> and we got him back in pretty quick. But uh, the reality is, is they govern themselves. I'm just a shepherd. Now, that's not what Cain was doing. Cain, Cain's system of government, that's not end up with what Saul did. Saul had lots of problems. David came after Saul. David made lots of mistakes, but then he repented of them. So he was a king after God's own heart because he, he started a draft and then said, oh, no, I'm going to put off that. He started building a central temple. And then he said, oh, no, I, I'm going to put that off because that's not the way it was originally designed. Eventually, Solomon did do those things. Solomon broke every rule in the book. But uh, Rehoboam, he was even worse. Because Rehoboam says, my father whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. Hardly your campaign promises that you want if you're going to elect somebody. But he's already king. So it wasn't quite a democracy. Although he got to be king because of the way they set up their original government. Whether it's a democracy or not, you go back to uh, what uh, Polybius said, you know, uh, 150 years before uh, Jesus Christ. And he says that masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of the rule of force and violence. They don't get them by charity like the kingdom does. They get them by force and violence. And see, that's what happens, is that the government gets into the business of the church. Into the business of religion. Religion is how you take care of the needy of your society, according to James. Pure religion is doing it unspotted by the world, the constitutional order or system of government. In other words, not 
done by force. Not at all by force. Nothing by force. All your social welfare is taken care of by faith, hope, and charity. If you don't have that system in place, you are not operating a free government. And you will not be free. If you're forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, your social welfare, you're not going to be free because as you judge, so shall you be judged. That's simple. So when he says in his letter, he, he starts off his, uh, letter, dear men of God, uh, Dan and Gregory. You know, I've gone through the material you sent me. So anyway, he, he's looking at the material and he was very impressed and he goes on and talks about that. But he says the existing nonpartisan communities which are already governing themselves through their own community assemblies and councils don't seem to feature in your kingdom governance model. Well, so, you know, I went and looked up what, what do you mean nonpartisan communities? Which is, you're talking about local government, which I, maybe goes down to the level of clan. Maybe there's even subdivisions within a clan. Certainly is the ultimate subdivision is the family. So how are they governing themselves? Are they ruling over one another? Are they setting rules? And I, I always give the example of a small village that somebody came back to a village that had saved their life during World War II and they wanted to do something for the people of the village and so they wanted to drill a well. They were going to pay for the drilling of a well in that village so that everybody have good fresh drinking water. And that would be a great help because occasionally the water would get contaminated and people would get sick. You could get cholera. You could get all kinds of things. So a good well was life-saving to the village. So they went to the village chief and they said, where should we put the well? And he says, I can't tell you. He says, well, you're the chief. And he says, yeah, but I don't make those kinds of decisions that people have to do. And next thing you know, you see the elders of the community, which are the heads of families, they clearly were grandfathers. Behind each one was sitting a couple of other young men. And behind them, others were sitting. That was the grandfather and his sons. And they were all those grandfathers were sitting together and they were deciding, should we put it here? Should we put it there? And some people are going to be farther from the well than others. And some people are going to be closer. And they're trying to make a decision that everybody knows is fair. And they talk it out in the hot sun until they come. So that that was a voluntary agreement in those nonpartisan communities. But they weren't forcing everybody. They weren't sitting down and said, okay, everybody has to give 20 bucks. Everybody has to give $100. Everybody has to give 10% of what they produce. They, they weren't taxing the people. That didn't come along until they had a king, an executive officer who could exercise authority one over the other, you know, that we see in Judea or in Israel, when it was still Israel, before they had a king. So, what are these nonpartisan communities doing? Are they doing things like God would say? Because, you know, I see uh, Montemala talking about, you know, how they're letting... You know, the ANC party is letting a lot of things go on in the community and even encouraging things in the community that are not in accordance with the morality of the Bible. And, and I mean, like, where are you going to draw the line? Are they going to suddenly start permitting slavery and and all these kinds of things that we see up in Libya? 
Well, hopefully not. But they are allowing certain things in that is breaking down the mores of society. And so he wants to start this other party that sticks closer to the basic premises of uh, biblical morality. Well, one of the things of biblical morality is that you do not covet your neighbor's goods. And any system of socialism is based on the idea that the majority can vote away part of the purse of the minority. They can force the contributions of the minority to take care of the needy. That's going against kingdom principles. And I'll show you where it says that exactly. Right out of the mouth of Christ. Because we've got to be teaching the doctrines of Christ. Not my doctrines, his doctrines. When he appointed the kingdom, which is supposed to be a nonpartisan system of government, he says, you are not to be like the rulers of the Gentiles, the governors of the Gentiles, the princes of the Gentiles. He says this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Very clearly. You're not to be like those governments who call themselves benefactors, you know, providers of benefits, but exercise authority one over the other. So you're not to be like that. The church is not supposed to be like that. But the church should be practicing pure religion, taking care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity. Now, the problem is there's a certain amount of socialism in almost every government today. The United States is far more socialist than it would want to admit. Public education, socialist. Social security, socialist. The money system is basically socialist. Because the money system includes a tax. They call it inflation, but it's really a tax. And the more money they print, the more the money in your pocket (laughs) loses value. I mean, people have to pay income tax in the United States on their labor. If you go out and work, you know, you can calculate that up, how much you're going to have to pay in income tax. But inflation, it can tax the money in your wallet as we speak. (laughs) It can, it can take away the supposed value of that money while we're here, which of course is because we've already strayed from biblical principles of having just weights and measures. those bills in your pocket, they're neither weight nor measure. They're, they're notes. They're promises to pay. And so they can lose value. So we're, you know, when you want to start moving in the direction of the kingdom with a kingdom governance movement, you have to know what the kingdom looks like. You can't just come in and say, oh, we're going to get rid of all paper money. <laughs> You know, what are you going to do in the meantime? I mean, that's going to be a mess. And you can't say, well, we're going to get rid of all social welfare today. Now, the the truth is, if governments collapse, all those social welfare and the money, and we've seen this in numerous places in Africa and South America. We even saw elements of it in the United States when we had double-digit inflation. The, The money will collapse eventually. I mean, given enough time, you know, Five years, ten years, a hundred years, I don't know. But eventually, you can't keep going like it is. It collapsed in Rome. It's going to collapse here. It collapsed in, in several countries in uh, Africa. It's probably going to collapse eventually in South Africa as well. I mean, they have a certain advantage. They do have gold mines and diamond mines and all these kinds of things. But the reality is, is you can't just keep printing money. 
and uh, eventually it catches up with you. And of course, the whole idea of borrowing against the future of your children is cursing your children with the debt. So if you're not living within your budget, the United States certainly is not living within its uh, the income that it gets from taxation. Uh, it's spending way more than it gets in. And so therefore it's cursing its children, which of course Peter prophesied. We see it prophesied. Our fathers have eaten sour grapes, you know, eaten them before they were ripe, turned our teeth on edge. And we see references that that proverb will be heard no more in the world, but we're seeing it going on right now as every, every few months they up the, uh, the ceiling limit on government borrowing. And that's cursing your children because you're borrowing money against their labor. And many of them haven't even entered the labor force yet. Some of them haven't even been born. What you're you're seeing in this whole process is that we've gone a long way from, from kingdom governments. You know, it's not just in the uh, uh, areas of promiscuity and and some of the things that we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Because it tells you in the Bible, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is not usually what most people answer. It, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is in a time of affluence they did not strengthen the poor. So, if you're going to have, uh, yeah, again, I don't know what his nonpartisan community governance looks like because I, I'm just not familiar with ever all aspects of South African government. But he says, remember, these nonpartisan community assemblies and councils are currently uh, marginalized by the failed global Babylonian uh, divisive partisan politics systems of this world. And uh, that may be very accurately used, uh, the word world there, because that's, again, the constitutional order and system of government, not only in South Africa, but in the whole world, because we have a global economy now. And so that's part of that constitutional order, the, the what do we call it, the one world order <laughs> kind of thing that comes out of the United Nations. And and uh, we could go into all the kind of influence of uh you know, the the World Bank and uh, monetary systems that they have that are forcing governments to comply with the desires of maybe the United States or other countries that have a great deal of influence over that monetary system. Most, if not all, of these nonpartisan communities believe in God. Well, they talk about that they believe in God, but remain in prisons of religious, secular, humanist systems of this world. Absolutely. You cannot... The idea of everybody coming out of these systems, and and the particular book that he's reading is, you know, 15 chapters of showing how we went into bondage, how we've gone back into the bondage of Egypt. Now, that's that's something in in our book, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, we go have a chapter that goes into what God says should be in your constitution. Because God writes down Deuteronomy 17.16 is the area in which you'll find this. He writes down five elements that you are to write down in your constitution and read to your leaders every day if you want to have what they call a king, which is somebody with executive power. 
you know, executorial power. You know, they can, you know, that's why Saul was elected to make things right. There was corruption. He was going to set things right. But the problem with that is you give power to Saul and power corrupts. So if you do it the way God said originally and everybody sits down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and everybody actually loves their neighbor so that when you see that somebody is taking a bribe to let somebody off the hook through their system of... of, See, if everybody doesn't know that these tens, hundreds, and thousands and those, uh, those cities of refuge were actually a system of appeals courts. If you don't know that already, if you think they're actually, oh, I committed a crime, they're going to get me for it, so all I have to do is run real fast and get to this town before they catch me, and then I, I, they can't, they can't punish me. I can't, so all the criminals run to those cities of refuge. No, that's not what it was. There, you have to go back to the Hebrew and see that, no, that this is an appeals court process. And they will overturn your local verdict and say, no, he's not guilty of what you're accusing him of. Because you violated some basic rules of trial or whatever. Well, the guys up in those appeals courts were Levites. And if you bribe them, they might let you off the hook. And then you can get away with stuff, including murder. And they won't, they won't, because you've, you've received, uh, you know, some sort of exoneration by appeal. And now if you go and kill that guy, you're a murderer. So, that's, that's what that was. It was a whole system of appeals courts. You could have fixed that by people taking the time to come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and just as this guy appealed up to this particular level of the appeals courts and then was let off, you know those guys took bribes. Because he was guilty of sin. And so, now the information should come back that those guys up there are taking bribes. They knew they were taking bribes. That's clear by the text. So what you say is that, I mean, those guys higher up, they got there because the, your, the minister of your minister elected them. And you say, now, if you're going to approve those guys up there, I'm not going to pick you anymore and I'm not going to tithe to you. I'm going to pick somebody who understands that bribery is is not right. And then you would have removed those guys. But somehow other people weren't sitting down and paying attention to what Jesus lists as the weightier matters. And, And he condemned the Pharisees for not attending to the weightier matters in their existing nonpartisan communities. They they weren't dealing with these issues. What were the weightier matters? Law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You see, Jesus was preaching a government, a self-government of righteous moral people. Now, does that mean you have to... You're right. When he, he says in his letter, he talks about them being in prison. Not just a prison of religious, secular, humanist systems. But, yeah, the systems of the world, if they're providing the welfare for the people in your community, if they're providing all the social welfare services in your community, that's a religious, secular system. Because it's the world providing the free bread. 
that should be coming through the daily ministration through faith, hope, and charity. So what the problem is, is that the churches aren't doing their job and the government is doing, therefore filling that vacuum and doing the job that the churches should be doing. So that's where the reform really needs to take place is in the churches need to start doing what they're supposed to be doing. Your welfare systems in these systems that are based on these monetary worldwide, you know, printing notes and borrowing from the World Bank and all that will fail eventually. And then all that social welfare will disappear and people will be rioting in the streets. The more you go back to church and the church starts doing what it's supposed to be doing instead of making people feel good about the fact that they're sinning most of the time in their secular systems, not just sexual promiscuity, but coveting their neighbor's goods through systems of socialism. You're not supposed to be doing that. Well, the, the beautiful thing about repenting and seeking the kingdom of God is it's a, it's a process. You can, you can start organizing, sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, the symposia and ranks of fifty and ranks of a hundred, like Christ commanded his disciples to do. All your churches should be doing this. And those local churches should not be just tickling the ears of its congregation and making them all feel like they're saved, even while they're doing contrary to what Christ said to do. They start teaching the doctrines of Christ and saying, amongst us, we're not going to exercise authority one over the other. We're not going to force the contributions of the people. Now, this is going to take some shifting in our thinking, which is, again, what repentance is, changing of the mind. And you can start small with baby steps. You can just say, you know, one place you can start is where people are falling through the cracks of the system. They're not getting helped. And they're not taking the time to help one another. So, you start there, and then you start expanding it. And as the system begins to collapse and fall through the cracks, you now the Holy Spirit can enter into your congregations. Because you're actually listening to the needs of your congregation. Not just emotional needs, but actual physical needs. And now God will hear you. We'll be back the keys of the kingdom. So welcome back to the Keys of the Kingdom. I, you know, I've gone over this uh, letter uh, numerous times, and uh, and you know there's certain phraseology, and you know I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk with the the individuals, and, and you know that's why I took the extra time of listening to uh, radio shows and reading some of the material and looking at Wikipedia what they say about the his. Uh, Kingdom Governance Movement, and and try to get a feel for some of the terminology and things that they're saying. And and he's very close on a lot of things. But I'm sure that we're uh, bringing up items that are at least food for thought. And this is what Christ was doing. Christ was talking to people. They already had a government in place when Jesus showed up on the scenes. And uh, they had... Uh, their Sanhedrin. Now that Sanhedrin had become corrupt, and and Menahan and a lot of the others that were the 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 moralists had left the Sanhedrin, and they ended up other men were being put into power. Uh, the high priest was being appointed 
for years after year that each high priest that was being appointed was the son of a man by the name of Ananias. And finally Caiaphas was appointed because Ananias ran out of sons and they were all not liked by some portions of society. But uh, Caiaphas was Ananias's son-in-law. <laughs> so so he was put into place. And, you know, I, I, I've pointed out that I think Caiaphas eventually repented and became a Christian. Which is, and there's a certain amount of evidence of that. It's not a question of belief. That's not a part of the doctrines of Christ. But it is some interesting things that Christ said specifically to Caiaphas that brings certain things into question. Those quotes from Christ to Caiaphas. It says he said them to Caiaphas are misused a lot of times in modern church doctrine because they weren't said to us. They were said to Caiaphas. But anyway, we won't go into all that. There's so many things. But the kingdom of God is really very simple. You have to love God, the character of God, the spirit of God, the you know, the God is is has certain characteristics, and uh, I talk about this in an article I'm putting together on scapegoats, which is another misunderstood thing of the Old Testament. But uh, that uh, this this idea of of uh, our understanding of what these things were happening at that particular time uh, and then applying the doctrines of Christ to those events will put our thinking in another position from which we may repent. Because repenting, again, is a process. It's a changing of the mind. Now, I don't want to change your mind just with facts, but God can change your mind with the Holy Spirit. And that's what what we often call being born again, which he makes mentions of in his letter, when individuals are born again, he says, they are once again swallowed up by the religious secular humanism. Well, part of that religious secular humanism says that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through government. It's okay, you know, socialist, the, the famous saying, or at least it's famous to me, most people haven't even heard of it, but socialism is the religion you get when you lose your religion. If you were all taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, and somebody came along and said, why don't you join our socialist program and we'll all have one purse, and we'll all contribute, and then we can take from that and divide the bread from house to house through the government, then you would say, well, we don't need that. We're already practicing pure religion. We don't need that humanistic, secular religion that forces the contributions of the people and gives power to those people who force those contributions to redistribute the bread from house to house. Peter was able to redistribute the bread from house to house, rightly divide the bread from house to house, because the people were contributing to the church and the needy of society. And they knew where things were going. They, Because they were sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. If everybody went to some common storehouse 
and you come through this big gateway door and you put stuff in there that you're contributing and then somebody at the other end is taking it out and distributing it out to everybody else you don't know where everything is going you have to depend upon the guys in charge of inventory well at the temple of janus that's the way they did things although they did keep books because the temple of janus was really more of an investment opportunity because you could actually get paid back by what you put in. That's not what the king, we just had this conversation that the kingdom of God, the church is not an investment plan. We don't, we don't, you don't give us money and then we invest in oil stocks and make a, a profit off of them. We invest back in you. That's what we are supposed to be investing in. That's, that's what you're, you're all supposed to be doing is investing in one another. You know, nobody, if if your churches are actually operating properly, nobody should have to go to a bank, a commercial bank, to borrow money. You know, everybody would have, you know, like a, a non-profit form of bank, which is like a credit union. Some calls it uh, fellowships and friends. Uh, they, they call it different things in different parts of the world. But credit union, it, where you have seven men who are, unpaid and they are appointed over this business of handling finances of the people for the daily ministration so that you can help out the poor way over there in Greece from Jerusalem which is what we see in Acts that's what they were doing look out amongst yourself pick seven men that you trust and we will appoint them over this business And, you know, because it's not right that we wait on tables. The word tables there is the same word for bank in the Hebrew. It's even translated bank in the Bible in another place. Because those seven men were in charge of the bank. But it wasn't a bank because it wasn't for profit. Banks are for profit. Credit unions are non-profit. So that was a way in which... So you don't... They can... Credit unions can forgive loans. Banks can't do that because they would be robbing their stockholders because they're in it for profit. See, it's a, it's a different thing. So these are things you can do right in your system. Jesus didn't start his ministry with come out of them, my people, lest you be partakers of their sins. He started turning around their thinking by explaining the kingdom of heaven is like a net. That He's talking about a network. He's commanding the people to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and share what they have. I mean, John the Baptist was doing this. Everybody else was using force, setting up systems of socialism. You know, like we see Polybius saying, again, if we go back over to Polybius, we see that he was he was dealing with the, the masses were continuing with an appetite for benefits, government benefits. And the habit of receiving them by way of the rule, rulers of force and violence, who force the contributions of the people. The people having grown accustomed to feeding at the expense of others, and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of violence. And now uniting their forces, massacre, banish, and plunder until they degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. 150 years before Christ, the historian of historians is telling the people what's going on. By the time Christ came, 
the, the almost the entire empire was operating their social welfare systems by forced contributions, by forced sacrifices of the people. That's why Jesus talks about the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. Because the Corbin, Corbin means sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect because it was by force. John the Baptist, before Jesus, was not doing it that way. Everybody else was. All the other countries in Africa, they do it that way. I mean, there's some charity going on, certainly. And in some ways, some of those countries in Africa are probably closer to the kingdom (laughs) than we are over here in the United States. Because in the United States, almost all our social welfare is taken care of through men who exercise force. Through those benefactors, you know, those men who call themselves benefactors, they're not really benefactors. They never give away anything out of, you know, Bernie Sanders got three mansions and he's worth millions and millions of dollars. He's going around trying to force other people to contribute to the poor. I mean, I'm sure he hires a tax lawyer so he doesn't lose the millions and millions of dollars that he makes on speaking speaking engagements. You know, people don't realize what's going on here with the, all these. Why are all these people running for president? Yeah, you know, a lot of them don't have to stand a chance. Well, they they say, well, you know, we you have to get your feet wet and all this stuff. All the money they collect that they do not spend, they get to keep. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was. There was a guy running for governor here in the state of Oregon, and he was uh, just right up to the election, was saying, oh, we're still trying to reach our goal, and we're still trying to, you know, get enough, please donate and everything that we're, we haven't re- reached our goal. Well, that money that was coming in wasn't going to go out on campaign. They were only days away from the election. But all the money that came in, he gets to keep, tax-free, sitting in there for whenever he needs it. <laughs> He'll probably run for another office. Uh, it's, it's, they, you know, everybody wants, uh, Trump's tax returns. You know, it would take a semi to bring Trump's tax returns. <laughs> you, you couldn't go through them all. They, they would just love a copy of that and they'd go through and try to find some mistake somewhere. Uh, but the, the tax returns you want to see is all the ones who came into Congress and the Senate and to positions of, uh, of power. Who weren't rich, <laughs> but are rich today. That's the ones you want to see, because that's going to tell you what's going on. But anyway, that's that's all part of that. We're people are putting their faith in the governments of the world, and 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 uh, he's absolutely right that uh, people, you know, uh, Motomala is absolutely right when he talks about this. Res- this religious secular humanist system. I'm not sure how far he takes that, and that's what I'm trying to find out them and learn more about him and how he thinks and you know what what these terms encompass when you put them all together. He says uh, when the individuals are born again, they are once again swallowed up by this religious religious secular humanism. Well, again, born again. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That original phrase, born again, it goes. Way back to Kaneaform, uh, writings that way back, you know, in the days of Sanskrit and long before the Hebrews and, and, uh, and Abraham and everything. Born again means to be free. 
to be born out of a system of bondage so that you are free again. In Samuel 8, the people are going into a system of bondage by looking for men who could exercise authority to make things right instead of coming together and making things right themselves. We've gone so far away from that so that a lot of people are born again. They 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 get an emotional experience. That they may even receive a little bit of a spiritual enlightening. How much enlightenment have they received? You know, if you're an absolutely in a dark, dark, dark place and can see, you can't see the hand in front of your face. And somebody lights a little candle or a little, little, uh, a diode, you know, light goes on. It seems real bright. You suddenly can see all around because your eyes are all dilated and this is a lot of light. You go out in sunlight, you won't even be able to see again. So, born again, how born again? (laughs) Are are you just seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, or are you actually born again and a new man in Christ? Entirely a new man. Well, how much truth can you handle? That's going to tell me how much you are born again. And so, yeah, there's still, a lot of times they're still back in this bondage because they have not yet seen the whole truth, the fullness of the gospel. Gospel simple. It's just about loving your neighbor instead of coveting your neighbor's goods. It's a, it's about having the patience to hope for charity rather than force the contributions of your neighbor. If, you know, many people will believe that they believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ, the, you know, the Messiah. They, they believe that they believe in Him, but they're actually still workers of iniquity because they're still coveting their neighbor's goods. They're still slothful in the in the charity that is required for pure religion. They're still not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I mean, there's no stories about it. it. All those people that had followed Jesus out to the desert, he's commanded his disciples that everybody has to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Was there some that said, no, I'm not going to do it? You know? It's kind of like... We had an old cowboy out here named Marcus Aurelius. That's actually what his name was, Marcus Aurelius. I kid you not. And he had a ranch. is the old part in place. And uh, he had a big branding. And there were lots and lots of people who showed up for the branding. But there was more people than they could ever use. And a lot of people were just sitting on the fence the whole time. And other people were down in the corrals and, you know, grabbing one calf after another and flipping it up and... And branding it and doing everything they needed to do for that calf. And the women were over there fixing a meal. When they were finally done, Marcus stood up and said, Well, we're all done. We'll let these calves back out with their mothers. And everybody who's been working hard, let's let's go over and have something to eat. And everybody's been sitting on the fence. You just keep sitting on the fence. <laughs> And so they all went over and ate and all the guys who'd just been sitting on the fence, they all went, eventually went home because they weren't welcome. Well, this is, this is a story right out of Christ. He talks about people coming to the wedding feast, but they don't have on the right garments. They haven't been living the life. And so this is the governance movement of the kingdom is people sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and not asking the governments of the world, to force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. Now, these governments may be democracies. Democracy is not your answer. 
It was the voice of the people. It was democracy that called for a king in Samuel 8. You go read Voice of the People. It says it right there. The democracy is where 51% of the people could take away the rights of the other 49. Democracies only work in heaven. And hell, they're just more hell. So, unless you're sitting down with people who are not workers of iniquity, people who are not slothful in the ways of Christ, you're not going to have a solution. But, this is the beauty of it. Everybody doesn't need to sit down. Some people are going to get in there, and, you know, like at Marcus Aurelius' branding, and they're going to all participate and help out and, and share, and they'll sit down in those tens, hundreds, thousands. They don't just gather once a week so that they can get a good feeling from a, you know, a charismatic preacher. You know, we don't have a lot of charismatic preachers in our groups. And some people said, well, I don't really like that guy because he, he's not charismatic enough. I don't get a good feeling after I sit down, you know, he's, but he, that, the guy I'm thinking of, he shows up at every minister's meeting there is, you know, why aren't all of you showing up? <laughs> I got guys who think that they're God's gift to humanity, but they won't sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And we've had guys who come and tell me about their, their uh, theological degree. That worries me, a theological degree. I mean, I'm not prejudiced. You could have a theological degree and still be a man of the kingdom. But I worry about that, those things because it's not a, it's not complicated. It's about showing up for one another, being there for one another. That's one of the things in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. That's an elder-driven congregation. Who are the elders? It's all those men who sit down as the ten. That's the elders. We don't appoint elders. You're an elder because you're a head of a family. And you have to sit down with other heads of the family without stepping on his rights. Caring about his rights, his family, his wife, his property, as much as you care about your own. You don't sit down in these groups coveting your neighbor's goods. You don't sit down in these groups to vote in rules that your neighbors are going to have to follow. You sit down in these groups to set your neighbor free, to love your neighbor, to be there for your neighbor. That's simple. It requires that you're forgiving because you're obviously going to step on each other's toes. Occasionally somebody's not going to step up when he should step up. You're going to have to forgive him. But you're totally in control of what you give and what you don't give. You're totally in control of what you forgive and don't forgive. It Sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands allows you to begin to govern yourselves according to the ways of Christ. That's that's what it does. And in that process, you will be strengthened. If you do something like socialism, you will weaken the poor. Go to Detroit. Go to Chicago. Go to Baltimore. See what social welfare is doing for the people. Go to the black community in America. 75% of the children are being raised out of wedlock with a single parent. A hundred years ago, that figure was down closer to 3%. 50 years ago, it was down close to 25%. 
That's what's destroying the black community. And it was targeted by men like uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who targeted them with social welfare, knowing, knowing full well that it would weaken them. But people have been going to public schools and they do not understand that, you know, religion, 200 years ago, religion was defined as the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. Today, it's defined as what you think about a supreme being. Well, obviously, what you think about a supreme being may have an effect on your pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. But it's the religion was the performance of your duty. If you go back to the Greek word that we translate, in, the most common Greek word we translate into religion, threskia. Threskia is what you do. It's not what you think. It's what you do. So, pure religion is doing, being the government of God. And being born again into the government of God is an ongoing, like birth, a process. And when you're born a a baby, an infant, you can't walk. You have no control over your bladder. You can't talk. (laughs) You can't do anything. So, how do you grow up once you're born again? You sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, start learning what it means to practice pure religion. Now, like I said, uh, does that mean that you have to leave the government, come out of her, my people, lest ye be partakers of the sin? That didn't come way until Revelations. Well, Christ was, when he met with the Roman centurion, he talked about him being a man of great faith. He didn't say, you know, resign your commission and get out of that wicked system. No, you can still run for political office. You just have to run with the Spirit of Christ. There were men in the Sanhedrin. Even though Christ had already appointed his Sanhedrin, his 70, there were still men in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem that were beginning to scratch their heads and think, you know, this Jesus guy's got something. What he's saying makes sense. Unfortunately, it wasn't the majority in the Sanhedrin, and so then eventually they voted to crucify Christ. So much for democracy. Democracy killed Christ. wasn't Rome. It was democracy. So democracy is not your salvation. But if you're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, democracy is not a problem. Like I said, democracy works great in heaven. They just don't need it. <laughs> they don't, uh, you know, socialism would work great in heaven, but they don't need it. They have religion, pure religion. So that's what you want to strive for is to work in that direction. You can still run for public office. Uh, you, if that's where God wants you, go there. He may want you to go into public office. He may want you to become a policeman. He may want you to become a truck driver. I don't know what he wants you to do. You go do what God wants you to do, what he's putting on your heart. He may change his mind. He may have you go into political office and then say, okay, I want you out of there. God could even want you to become a lawyer or a doctor. We need godly doctors who aren't going to force vaccinations on people and give them and say, well, no, this person has an exemption. (laughs) Because that's one of the big things they're trying to do. I don't know what God wants you to do. Each of you must decide that because you're following the Holy Spirit. But I know that God does not want you to covet your neighbor's goods. 
I know that God wants you to forgive those who are making mistakes. I know that God wants you to come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. I, I know that God wants you to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself and your neighbor's children and your neighbor's property as much as you care about your own. And I know that these things have to be practiced. It's just like if you want your muscles to, to be strong, you have to exercise. I don't usually have to do much exercise because I work. <laughs> the work is my exercise. Although I do a lot of stretching from time to time, especially early in the morning when I get up. But the reality is it's the doing. That's the seeking the king. That's why Christ starts with seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Both of them require the expenditure of energy. But that kingdom operates by faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and violence. So the more you get people to do that, the closer to the kingdom you become. You come. And the closer the kingdom comes to you. That's when the Holy Spirit starts to really enter in and awaken you to see more and more of the kingdom. And we'll talk more and more about that and, and further down in this letter. We didn't get all the way. We'll probably have to finish the whole thing this afternoon. But we'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So further down in the letter, he talks about the kingdom and nations of God must be governed accordingly. He talks about uh, Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to restore the covenant of the kingdom of God on earth so that the covenant citizens, families, and communities, kingdom and nations of God must be governed accordingly. And then he quotes Matthew 18, uh, no, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Well, let's read that Great Commission so that we can see this in the context. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So, he's not just king in heaven. He's king on earth. And, of course, Pontius Pilate said he was king. He made an official Roman document that said that this is the... You know, you always see pictures of the crucifix. And I have this little broken piece of wood up there with a few letters on it. No, it describes it as a... It was actually made out of ebony wood and covered with plaster. So you had white back, uh, background with black letters saying this is in three languages, which is an official Roman document. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate did not convict him. Found no guilt in him and said this is the king of the Jews. People say, well, the Jews didn't accept him. No, the Pharisees didn't accept him, but the, many of the Jews did. On Pentecost, thousands, thousands and thousands of people accepted him. When they say 2,000 one day, 3,000 the next day, those are heads of families. So that we're talking tens of thousands of people accepted Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the King of Judea. The apostles are working daily in the temple, a government building, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. That's the government. When they were being cast out of Jerusalem by those who wanted to go by this way of force and and were in battle with the Roman government, and Titus was about to surround them, they they left by the thousands and had places to go because they had built this network of tens, hundreds, and thousands everywhere. Let, let's go back to reading. He says, Go 
Ye therefore and teach all nations. That's all peoples. All Gentiles. Ethnos is the word there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Now that baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's not dunking them in water. That's the process of immersing them in a way. That's what Christianity was called. The way. John the Baptist says, I'm only baptizing you with water, but there's one who comes after me that baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we're supposed to be baptizing with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of love, the Spirit of forgiveness, the Spirit of righteousness, which is the Spirit of God. That's what we're supposed to be bringing to our congregations. Not a bunch of ear ticklers telling people they're already saved while we allow them to continue to covet their neighbor's goods through the exercise of force. We don't do that. He goes on further to say, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So, what word is that? The end of the world. <laughs> should we, should we, should we look that up? <laughs> but anyway, we, uh, I'll let you guys look that up, find out. Is that age? Is that ecomene? Is that cosmos? Uh, what world is ending there? Because most of the time when it's talking about the end of the world, it's not talking about the word, the Greek word that means planet. As a matter of fact, the Greek word that means planet is almost never translated world. So anyway, that's that's your homework. But let's go to the other word he says. I have commanded you. So what did Jesus command? You know, so actually during the break I went and quickly looked up every place. That particular word, Greek word for commanded, shows up in the Bible right away. I, I see uh, Matthew fourteen nineteen. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And so we have a picture of what we think all took place there. Uh, we see the same word again in Matthew fifteen thirty-five, And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Now, in Mark, we see a greater description that he was commanding them to sit down in the symposia. You know, the small groups of ten in ranks of fifty and ranks of one hundred. There were five thousand men and their families there. So, like I say, there's twenty, thirty thousand people. And they're going to distribute the loaves and fishes. He begins the process by giving away that which was set aside for him to eat. He hadn't eaten all day. And he took what he was to eat and he gave it away. So anyway, we talk about that in other places. But the point is, are you sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded? Are you coveting your neighbor's goods like Christ commanded you not to be doing? Are you keeping the commandments? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what it says in John. It doesn't say you will try to. It says you will. If you're not keeping the commandments, that's evidence you lack faith. That you you may be born again, but you are falling. You're not walking as a child of God. You're, you're not living from the grace of God. And as a small infant born again, you may die. 
(laughs) You know, people say, once saved, always saved. Well, maybe. How saved are you? Just because you're born again, and I'm not really convinced a lot of people who think they're born again are really born again. I think they had an emotional experience. I'm not sure whether they had a spiritual one or not. How do you know who's really following the ways of God and who's not? By what they're doing. Are they coveting their neighbor's goods? Are they slothful in charity? Are they not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Do they come to the church for a good feeling? Or do they come to church to do righteousness? Because that's what we're supposed to be seeking. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. That means we have to be righteous in our dealings with others. He talks about Israel was treated uh, as a collective uh, nation just like the city of Nineveh. Well, true. But, you know, I mean, uh, Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah were treated as a collective, but some people were saved out of it. And Abraham goes through a big, long dissertation. If I can find ten righteous men. Okay, well, can I find ten righteous men in in uh, uh, Johannesburg or, uh, you know, Sydney, Australia or... New York, Los Angeles, are there ten righteous men? I'm not talking about nice guys. I'm talking about righteous men who are really woke up. Now, Nineveh repented and it was spared. Gomorrah and Sodom, they did not repent. Lot wasn't that great. (laughs) You know, Lot, Lot was willing to sacrifice for those men who came, those men of God who came Angels, whatever you want to call, who came there to to warn him. He was willing to sacrifice to save them, and because of that, he was saved. And this is what you have to do. You, you're you, South Africa is headed for trouble. The whole world's headed for trouble. You don't have to be in South Africa to be headed for trouble. Uh, there is a battle that has already begun. That's going to heat up over time. And evil, those people of evil probably outnumber those people of good. But those people of good are not as good as they need to be. And you never will be. You're like the prodigal sons. You want to go back to your father's house, you have to go back to be a servant. You have to go back to, you gather together not for what you can get out of it. You don't gather together so that you will be saved. You gather together so that you can save others. That is the repentance you need to do. You need to be gathering together so that you can do righteousness to others and for others and practice pure religion, which is the entire social welfare of your community needs to be taken care of by faith, hope, and charity. Your your local uh, nonpartisan communities. That's a long ways away from where we are at today. We need to change that. When you have to be careful of this reference to the collective because the Bible talks about the ways of the one purse. If if sinners entice thee and say let's all have one purse, this collective. Uh it says, you know, consent not. Don't go along with that because it runs towards death. You will be trapped in the net of your own making. If you decide that you, it's okay to take from your neighbor's purse 
to provide for a good cause, then it's okay that your neighbor take from your purse. And you've got a lot more neighbors than you, and they're going to take and take and take and take and take. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship, and God is that dictator. So we have to do things the way God wants them to be done. And it's not as a collective. It's as individuals. One of the promises of the Messiah was that he was going to return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. That, and this is one thing that actually comes up. Uh, we won't get through much of it probably before we're running out of time. I'm taking a look at the clock. But I'll, I'll go into it in, in greater depth. Uh, both individuals and collective family communities. Well, family is the unit of God. God instituted the family. Cain instituted the first government. That was a collective. Nimrod instituted government that was a collective. Saul became the leader of a government that was a collective. And in every case, they ended up taking and taking and taking and taking. And it caused a degeneration of the people the same as it caused Cain to degenerate, Nimrod to degenerate, Saul to degenerate. God allows you that choice, but if you go that way, it's going to cause a degeneration of the of the people of the legislature of the leaders and rulers of your society that's that's just it's built in you can't change it you might have a david now and then that uh that uh repents of but even david was tempted uh more than once to do the wrong thing i mean obviously it wasn't just bathsheba it was a lot of things that he, he tried to number the people and force a draft and like I say build a central temple which is centralizing power the whole idea of the tabernacle moving around is it's not centralized so anyway it, it, yeah I, I put down here is yes but it it is the individual that repents not the collective and hope that the collective repents also so you gather together you if that's one of the big problems people want to gather with a congregation of saints. And I said, if you ever could find a congregation of real saints, and we use the term kind of loosely, but real saints, a congregation of real saints, where everybody was really righteous, not easy to find. If you did find them, why do you think they're going to let you in? <laughs> so, no, that you, Christ sat down with sinners. So, yeah, you'll sit down with sinners. That doesn't mean you approve of the sin. But, as a matter of fact, you, as many as I love, I also rebuke. And what you find is that if you sit down with the intent and heart of Christ, the sinners will leave. The ones who choose to sin and continue in that sin will leave. You don't have to throw them out. They will leave. They will not be comfortable around you. That That's... Because the more the Holy Spirit enters, this is it. It's your walk. The more you let the Holy Spirit into you, the more you are governed by that Holy Spirit, the more that light in you will drive out the cockroaches. Drive out the vermin. They will They will flee the light that is shining from you. You don't have to do anything. If you have to do it, then it's not the Holy Spirit. 
You just have to be seeking the kingdom of God. That's how simple it is. You have to be seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness in all your relationships with your family, with your neighbor, with your congregation. That's what you have to do. And you have to have the patience to allow the Holy Spirit to remove those who are going to need to be removed and to change those that are willing to be changed. You don't change them. They have to be changed by the Holy Spirit. If you are the one called out, you will focus on the hearts of the individual and facilitate the kingdom, not change the world. John the Baptist tried to reform Herod, and then that's when he got into trouble. He was casting his pearls to swine. Not that maybe that's where he had to go. And of course, it, it, it's, you know, he willingly went that way. You have to remember, John the Baptist did not know Jesus was the Christ. At first, he knew he was a righteous man. He knew he, his sandals, he was not worthy to even unloosen. He, he knew that this was the man who was to come after him. But in the role that John the Baptist was, which was really the high priest who had moved the laver out to, out of the corrupt, he, you know, he was, John the Baptist was the first of the Ecclesia, the coming out. He came out of Jerusalem, moved the laver out to the Jordan River, and was baptizing people there, washing people up there, instead of at the laver at the temple. Because he had, he'd come out there, probably at the same time Manahan and the rest of the Sanhedrin were marching out, and then they pointed this new Sanhedrin, which was an illegal one. Which is interesting that I see, like in, in our own state, that almost everybody sitting in Congress today, according to the research that people I know in government are doing, are there illegally. Because they had accepted more than 10% of their donations from outside of the state. And that, according to the law, they have to step down. They probably won't. But it makes their government illegitimate. This is a big deal. It may be a part of fulfilling a prophecy. But I don't have to worry about that. I just have to worry about what I do <laughs> on a day-to-day basis with the people that I... And this is the thing about the kingdom... You know, we're not charging uphill against the enemy. We're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And and your great victories will be on the ground where you live. And everybody else's great victories. God's going to take the credit when the great victory comes. Not us. So all we have to do is deal with those kingdom relationships right in front of us. Right before us. And so... Uh, let's see, what else he is to emphasize the righteousness and justice of the kingdom is highly appreciated. That you, in, in reading the book that he was talking about, biblical absolute values, ethics, and principles. And of course, that includes not coveting your neighbor's goods, not cursing your children with debt, you know, keeping the Sabbath, which means you work first and you earn what you get, you don't borrow against the future which is almost every government is borrowing against their future. And that's how, you know, debt is slavery. And they're, they're bringing their whole nations collectively into debt. And then we could go into, but we won't have time here, why Christ made other commandments specific to his disciples. And, and this understanding that will help us understand why and who held all things in common. Because if the prophecy was that God was... You know, Christ was this year of Jubilee where every man was returned to his family and every man to his possession. 
then what's this hold all things in common thing that we see in Acts uh, 2.44? That is, is not a socialist communist government that they're setting up. Uh, Christ was reforming people back to what that original covenant was supposed to be. That what the Pharisees were doing was making the word of God to none effect. Christ was going to take the kingdom from them, appoint it to another group of guys. He wasn't going to change all the parameters of God and say, okay, God had it wrong the first time, but now we're going to do things all different. The reality, and this is part of what I was trying to impart when I was answering Ben Shapiro, is that the kingdom and God and us should be the same as we were yesterday and today. The problem is, is that we have strayed from the formula and we've paid the price. And that price is bondage, being entangled again in the yoke of bondage, which goes back to those five things you were to write down in your constitution and read to your leader every day that we talked about at the beginning of the show, Deuteronomy 17:16, which we go into in great detail in the book uh, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitution, which all our books are free online. You don't have to buy. I'm not selling books. I mean, we will sell you a book, but... You can just download it and read it. You don't have to buy it from us. You can print it out. You just can't resell it. <laughs> As if you wrote it, which we've had people do. Copy whole chapters out of our books, put them in their books, and then go out and sell them on Amazon. <laughs> well, we don't permit that. That's why there's a copyright. But uh, we are not trying to... We're, we're not like Bernie Sanders who says he's made his millions because he wrote a book and he sold millions of books. We give them away. We give them away because we know we can't become free. I mean, nobody was charging entry for the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you, everybody came there for free, but it does cost you to hear about the kingdom, but it costs you the delusions that you previously brought with you. You have to set those delusions down and see that the government of God is, and seeking the government of God, which is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, same thing. Seeking that is a process. And that process includes following every commandment of God. We're to preach the kingdom of God. And what was the other thing that they said in Matthew uh, 18? That you were to preach the kingdom of God and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Which was to make sit down in this charitable network. This network of faith, hope, and charity that is established by your cooperation, your voluntary cooperation to practice pure religion. Which is the pious performance of your duty to God which includes this, you know, preaching the kingdom and baptizing people. And it includes not only that duty to God, but your duty to your fellow man, which is part of your duty to God, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. It is not love to put your neighbor into debt. It is not love to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. It is not love to subject your neighbor to a democracy that can take away the rights of the individual. Sitting down in the kingdom is sitting down in a system of faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and violence. I can't hardly say it any more clear, but now you have some perspective when I say that. 
So he says, once again, your focus uh, on free kingdom assemblies and councils exercising voluntary love and charity for all the poor widows and orphans is highly appreciated. However, we seem to be weak in explaining the reasons why God created a commonwealth for all humankind and designed and sustained shared uh, entrepreneurial commonwealth. Uh, economic development plan for covenant individuals, families, communities, kingdoms, nations of God after uh, the falling away in the Garden of Eden. Well, actually, it depends on what you see as an economic development plan. Cain had an economic development plan. plan. Nimrod had a commonwealth economic development plan. And, that, this, you know, the... the uh, the explanation is often found in the details. What do you, what is that plan? See, the plan of Nimrod is that he owned everybody's land, he owned everybody's labor, and he could tax you on your labor. Pharaoh had that same plan. Caesar eventually had that same plan. Rome didn't have it. Caesar had it. Uh, Caesar, the, the Rome of Caesar was a socialist state. He could tax the people. He he usually taxed foreigners more than the people right in Rome. But he eventually taxed the people in Rome and confiscated property and all that sort of thing. Did God design governments with executive power or did men? Well, Cain did. Nimrod did. But God's executive power was based on, you know, I mean, Peter was appointed a kingdom. He had executive power over the kingdom, but not over the people. The church is separate from the congregation. This is what a lot of people don't get, and we'll have to go into that. We'll also go into Acts 2, 44, and, uh, and more detail into those five elements of what a God allows in a constitution. And we'll have to do that in the show this afternoon. But by the time we're done, you should have a pretty good idea of some of these things, because we're not going to just go with Deuteronomy 17, but Deuteronomy 8, and some of these other places. Until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.